Welcome to Warrensville Reaching New Heights. I'm your host, June Scharf, and on today's episode, I have someone with a very recognizable name is Tom Heinen, and his company, Heinen's Grocery Stores, has a huge imprint in this city. Uh, they occupy four buildings, hundreds of thousands of square feet, and one of the buildings goes back to the 60s. So his company has been here for a very long time. And it was uh, the grocery stores were begun by his grandfather uh, in, in the late 30s. And I think if he could see what his grandsons have done with the business, that's Tom and his twin brother, fraternal twin brother, Jeff, uh, if he could see what they've done with the business, he would be so proud. It's incredible what they have done because this is an extremely competitive sector um, and it also has very tight margins. So you don't have any room for error or it will impact your bottom line. The business is not getting any easier either, but Tom is very happy to talk about the business of food. What you'll very quickly realize is that to be in the business of food, you are actually in a multitude of businesses that's trucking, marketing, staffing, just like any other retail business, um, but it's pretty complex. I'd like to add that this is a longer episode than usual, but that's only because there was so much to cover. So please enjoy this conversation with Tom Heinen. Welcome Tom Heinen to the podcast. I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, the, the occasion for you to be here is that you have three facilities in Warrensville Heights. It's your administrative office, your warehouse, and your new $25 million food production plant. So my first question really is how did you find your way here? <laughs> to Warrensville Heights? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I will correct you. We actually have four facilities okay. now in Warrensville Heights, um, I believe, because we have, um, let's start with the first building, which was in 1960. My grandfather did something really unheard of um, in, in our industry then and now, which is with only four stores, he opened up a 110,000 square foot warehouse and office facility. With only how uh, many stores? Four. Four, okay. And, uh, and, it, and he self-distributed his grocery, dairy, frozen meat products, um, like I said, unheard of for anybody with just four stores and not to be out you know not, that wasn't good enough but in 1972 he opened up we call that warehouse one mm -hmm. and um, we now he opened in 1972 warehouse two which was strictly grocery and um, that's 220,000 square feet on top of the 110 so he had a total of seven stores when he had 330,000 square feet of space, but in where doing are they that, look, where are they located? Well, so the um, warehouse one is at the intersection of Aurora Road and Warrensville Center, um, sits on the southeast southeast corner. Mm -hmm. Then across the street, which is on South Miles, Aurora Road becomes South Miles as you cross Warrensville Center. Um, we're the first building when you cross Warrensville Center, so it sits on the south west, mm -hmm. well, southwest corner, um, and then we just recently, a year ago, opened up our food manufacturing facility, which makes it easy for us to call it Warehouse 3. <laughs> so we have those three buildings, and back in 2001, we actually moved our offices from Warehouse 1 to, uh, Sugar, or to Chagrin Highlands 
Aren't you on the corner of Emory? It was Business Park, Emory and Richmond. Richmond, yeah. And um, and we actually just took over more space. So um, you're growing. We're going to be there for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have four very important facilities here in Warrensville Heights, and uh, my grandfather, um, he was a terrific visionary. And interestingly, the people who've been in Warrensville Heights long enough will remember this: that um, back in the '60s, he was. Um, it was planned that 480 would intersect Warrensville Center and it would go both ways. But the truth is, um, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And it took decades, decade plus, before um, the full uh, ramp was finished onto 480 that would allow us to travel west. So we used to have to, um, it, would, it, it stopped at 77 I believe Mm -hmm. and so we would have to travel most of our trucks would travel 480 to 77 to Harvard Avenue go across Harvard Mm -hmm. and pick up 90 um, to go out to our Bay Village and Rocky River stores at that time so um, he he had a great vision the Department of Transportation didn't cooperate quite as well as he would have liked because then once we opened up the uh, the rest of 480 made getting to those stores a lot easier um, but he was uh, quite a visionary to um, want to do. He always believed that the more you can do for yourself, the better off you are. So when he built Warehouse 2, one of the reasons he did that was it freed up space in Warehouse 1 for, a- for us to actually manufacture food. So when he had just two stores, he was smoking meat, making his hams, bacon, bologna, in this little basement of our Taylor Road store. Mm-hmm. And so he opened up a very large facility for us at the time where we had two smokehouses and we were processing our own meats and cold cuts and at the time we carried no national branded meats we carried just our own which was radically different than anybody else and 72 when we opened warehouse 2 he added two more big smokehouses and we expanded and then we put in our first full what I would call prepared food kitchen, which really we used to call the salad kitchen because it made all our potato salad and coleslaw and macaroni salad. And we did pizzas at a time. And, um, but that was really the foundation of the first kind of cold food preparation that we did. Um, did you have refrigerated um, trans, uh, trucks back then? Yes. Okay. Yes, we've always had our own trucks. We've never outsourced that. We continue to operate our refrigerated trucks and our entire trucking system. And so, you know, it was a heck of an investment for him to make, but he really, he his business strategy at the time was, I can, I'm choosing to tie up my money in inventory and get the best cost um, rather than deal with a wholesaler and pay more for a product. Mm-hmm. And and so we did. We bought in on deals and um, he it was very, very successful. There was a time where um, where I'm pretty sure for many, many years Heinen's had the lowest cost product because we would only buy everything on deal and we would store all this product, you know, for ten to twelve weeks till the next deal. And so um, it really put us in a very good competitive price advantage at the time. Now, since that time, the manufacturers have changed what they do. They don't um, run deals the same way. They just they do a lot of um, price off through the register. Um, so you're, you, you really doesn't allow us to basically invest in inventory as a way to lower our costs. Um, but 
what it did do is it allowed us to continue to um, control our own destiny and what do we carry and how do we get to our stores and when do we get to our stores mm -hmm. and uh, Jeff and I who my twin brother Jeff who runs the business with me um, we have been blessed to have those two facilities uh, because they've created a very good competitive advantage for us. So location that Mooresville Heights is key a key location to your proximity to all your other stores. Yeah, that you know, basically answers no, that ex question. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and that's yeah. another um, great vision by my grandfather mm -hmm. that he understood that you know you always want to be at a crossroads, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can go 480, we can get on 271 very quickly. So um, from a standpoint of being in a business where you need to distribute to the Cleveland area, we're in a great location. We're lucky to have you. <laughs> so since you raised your dad, that was something I wanted to bring up. Just a little history here, uh, the shortened version. Um, your first store opened in uh, 1929 on the corner of Lee and Harvard, and that was in Sh that's in Shaker Heights. And um, it was your grandfather. I'm sorry, your grandfather, Joseph Heinen. And he was a German immigrant and a butcher. And it was at the request of his customers that he started carrying groceries in addition to the meat and what I read is you started out with peanut butter, pickles, and donuts. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's I, I, I'm not old enough to know that, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm willing to let the fact, willing to not let the facts get in the way of a good story. So <laughs> okay. I have no information that tells me that's not true. But okay. uh, he, he actually, the further part of that is he came over through Ellis Island when he was 10 months old, okay. and he graduated from John Hay High School, I believe. Uh, so that was in 1903. So in 1921, he graduated from John Hay High School. He went to work upon graduating from a guy who had five butcher shops named Mr. Diedro. And uh, my grandfather, who was Joe H. Heinen, um, he always had a vision and a dream that it made no sense not to carry produce and grocery and things in the meat because people always, in those days, people always started their meal planning around the protein, around meat. Okay. And so their menu was always based around what meat item am I having? And he's like, well, they have to come to the meat store. Mm -hmm. So why would we make them go anywhere else? Um, and so he started his butcher shop in 1929. Um, there's some discrepancy as to exactly where that store was, whether it was uh, east of Lee Road or west of Lee Road at Chagrin Boulevard. But we do know in 1933, the original building um, still exists today, and it's across the street from our Shaker Town Center, which is which that store was more towards the um, south east corner of that intersection and you can actually we have pictures of the original store with the dormers and you can look out Shaker Town mm -hmm. Center and it's like wow that's the building right yeah. there mm -hmm. um, now of course it's been repurposed m many times since then yeah. but he um, and so he in 1933 opened the first supermarket in the Cleveland area and um, really that constituted to your point a minimum of items he would send mm -hmm. a guy down to the uh, produce market every day and pick up some produce we had we have pictures of the store where the grocery was just on a huge wall and they would have these pickers that you would go pick the cans off so it was uh, it wasn't a very efficient way to shop but he did accomplish his dream and then the rest they say is, as they say is history because he continued to build grocery stores in Cleveland um, you know his strategic foundation really is the same as we have today, which is he, he understood that he was only going to be as good as the people that worked with him. And 
his approach was buy the best, sell the best. And so he focused um, a lot on um, really um, the phrase that he would use was, you know, treat your customers as guests and invite them back. So he focused a lot on helping all the people who worked with him understand that these are guests, you know, and they're not just faceless customers. So today we would use the words like customer engagement mm -hmm. and sourcing and different words, but frankly, if he woke up from the grave today and walked into Heinen's, he'd, he'd be surprised on some fronts, but he would clearly be able to see that the foundation of what he built his business is still very much alive. Do you think about him a lot? Um, when you're operating or opening uh, new stores? Uh, I think about him off and on. I mean, it's hard not to think about him when you, when I realized what a visionary he was and how ahead of his time he was in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, we're the only company in America that here in Cleveland, we don't let grocery carts out into the parking lot. And so our parcel pickup system, many people have parcel pickup, but nobody prohibits the carts from being in the store and mandates that. Well, so why did you make that decision? Well, it's, why did he make that decision? Okay. And he made that decision. Well, you're standing only, by it. So oh, no, no, right. Well, once once that service, that service is a service my grandfather started because, um, as I understand it, mm -hmm. um, is he said, we have limited parking, so carts take up parking spaces. In addition to that, um, they hit cars mm -hmm. and they ding cars. And three, and probably most importantly, it's like, well, why wouldn't customers want us to put their groceries in their cars for them? That's a great service. And so um, we do stand by it. And it's really because over the years, it's become not only an accepted service, but a demanded service by Heinz customers. And they would be incredibly disappointed if we gave that service up. The advent of plastic bags where you could carry more groceries um, diluted the number of shopping trips that would use um, parcel pickup, but it's still on the weekends a very busy corner of the store. And um, so, yeah, it's it was really insightful and, and visionary by him to create that. Okay, so it sounds like your dad was the one who kept the business going. Your dad is Jack. However, according to my research, uh, he turned down an offer to pitch for the Boston Red Sox to come back home, and he pitched 17 straight hitless innings for the Red Sox farm team in San Jose and was named Rookie of the Year. What's the story there? <laughs> he, uh, Wasn't he bagging groceries as a true. kid? It sounds he, like he was uh, playing baseball. Well, he worked, no, he did. He, he actually played three sports, uh, went to university school and played football, basketball, and baseball, just like uh, Jeff and I did, actually. And um, But he went to Stanford, and Stanford passed a, he pitched freshman year on, he was good. He threw the ball 100 miles an hour. So he, he, he just had, as he said always, I just had a God-given talent mm -hmm. to throw the baseball hard. And um, so what happened was he pitched freshman, sophomore, junior year, and then the Pac-10 at the time, Pac-10, now Pac-12, I believe, um, passed a law that said you could only play three years of varsity sports. And so they created the need for a freshman team. And while he'd already played three years, and they're like, you're done, mm -hmm. you can't play. And so he ended up playing in the Palo Alto Sandlot League. So um, Boston had a, what amounts, there was only a single A, double A, and then major leagues back in those days. There was no rookie league and no triple A. And so he, a Boston scout, saw him pitch 
in the Palo Alto League and said, hey, well, how would you like to come down to San Jose and pitch for us? So he finished his school, and then he was pitching, and then after school, he stayed with pitching for them, and, uh, but then he got drafted into the Korean War. And so back in those days, he, um, the, the, all the base, really good baseball players were drafted and they went to the Army. And so Willie Mays and all these wonderful, incredible players played. And the Army, for him, was a little different than most because the forts were very proud of their baseball teams. And so once they found my dad could play baseball, he kind of led a more privileged life, I think, in the service than many. And, uh, but he got a chance to pitch against all the major leaguers. And by the time he got out of the Army, uh, my older sister was born, he was married. And in those days, it wasn't, professional sports really wasn't a living. It was a, um, it was kind of an escape from the real world where you could have fun and be paid some money. So it's very, very different than it was now. So, you know, his, his opinion, I asked him many, many times whether he regretted not finally um, pursuing that. Because the Red Sox had said, when you come out of the Army, um, we're going to put you in double A, and then we're going the following year, we're going to bring you to training camp. And so he had a very good chance, I think, of playing pro baseball um, as a pitcher. And he just decided that that part of his play life was over and he needed to take care of his family and move on. I asked him many times of whether he regretted it. He never said he did, so. Okay, so then you and your brother Jeff, are you identical or? We're fraternal. Fraternal, okay. Because you look, I mean, you look a lot like brothers, but there are differences. Yeah, old, okay. old people with white hair, right. <laughs> right. Uh, so you're the grandsons, you run the business now. Only 10% of family businesses make it to the third generation, which you are, and, and only 3 to 4% make it to the fourth generation. So which family members are involved now? I don't know if there's wives or cousins or anything. Uh, actually, just Jeff and I are the only third generation involved. Um, okay. Jeff's son, Jake is a fourth generation, obviously, and he's involved. And I'm expecting my two daughters to join the business within the next two years. Wow. So we'll have, um, it's just our families. Um, the rest of the family chose to um, get, want to be bought out of their investment in Heinen's, and so they no longer are equity. Well, there's one cousin I have who's still an equity owner, but most of the second generation, third generation have all been bought out. So you're by the, their choice, not by ours. Okay, and so you're the you and Jeff are the decision makers. We are, <laughs> we're co-presidents. Okay, well, pe what people need to understand is that the profit margins are extremely tight in this business. So any mistakes can be costly. So I wondered if you could share some of your best and your worst decisions. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think our best decision has been to um, really be focused on the vision that, and sustained the vision that my grandfather started and my dad continued, which was to be very, very focused on our people and recognize that they are our greatest asset to be leveraged and not an expense to be minimized. Your people, your, your employees? Our associates. Okay. And, associates. Um, and I think also to be very um, rigorous in selling the very best food we can find. Um, so this whole quality of food, um, really good sourcing, um, find family farmers and ranchers that align with selling and growing or you know producing and growing great food that there's a lot of love and, and effort in behind and so that's how we see our business um, so I think that's probably um, so those are your one best, of best decisions things. <laughs> yeah um, worst decision. I think um, 
don't know if we have any really bad decisions. We have some stores that probably haven't performed as well as we would have hoped over the years, but none of them have been devastating to us. And, um, you know, historically, I, I think there was an opportunity that my dad would say was there that we didn't take advantage because he didn't think we were ready, but Columbus had a big upheaval in their market. And there was a time that Big Bear stores down in Columbus were for sale. And my dad had said if Jeff and I had been a little further along in our career, he would have seriously looked at um, expanding to Columbus. Hmm. Now, in the end, Jeff and I expanded to Chicago, so we still managed to expand out of Cleveland. Hmm. But uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know that that's a bad decision. It's just the timing wasn't right. So. Okay, so with all this stuff going on, all, all these stores and all the aspects of running a business. What does a typical day in the life of Tom look like? Well, a day these days is um, I go to our manufacturing plant every day. It's been open for over a year, opened last July. And um, that's my primary responsibility because we've struggled to get that um, at the service levels to the stores we want and to run efficiently the way we want. So um, that has become really my home base in the last year. Uh, but I also am primarily the senior executive who's primarily responsible for our Chicago expansion. And so uh, between 2014 and 2000, middle of 2017, I was literally spending two months, two weeks a month in Chicago um, developing the market and developing our culture. and and keeping it on the rails. And uh, we've done pretty well there, so um, we're pleased with what that is. And so um, right now it's moving pretty well. We've appointed a Chicago-based person to be the market manager, or regional manager as we call that. Um, and uh, so it needs less attention. And um, we still have people that support it out of Cleveland, but uh, overall that's my day in life now. Of course, um, I'm part of a six-member executive team and Jeff and I have put the executive team together as a way to mitigate um, things that we might not agree on. And, and so that it's not a sibling rivalry and it's not me against him or him against me. Like what? What uh, are we talking about? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes it's never, I think one of the reasons Jeff and I have been successful working together is our basic Anything that's really important, our, the values of the company, the mission of the company, even the strategy of the company, we've never disagreed on. Now, how you get there tactically can always lead to some disagreements. So, um, you know, I think that it's, well, what do you do? you do ABC first or you do BAC? And, and so getting other people's view to come into those more tactical decisions have been helpful. But frankly, we got enough going on in our company that um, we don't get in each other's way a whole lot. So, um, but it's it's uh, frankly, the executive team has offered us um, some really smart people, and and has given us opinions that um, are very valuable. And so it forms a collaborative decision-making process. Now, as they know, and as we say occasionally, you know, if Jeff and I agree on doing something, it doesn't matter what you guys think. <laughs> so, um, and, and the only example I would tell you that I think that's really true is Chicago, is none of our associates really felt it was necessary to go to Chicago, and Jeff and I um, felt it was necessary, that we needed to grow into another market and um, diversify 
our portfolio of assets of stores. And then we felt Chicago was a market we could do well in. So, um, but if anybody else in our company had been given that, um, the responsibility to make that decision, they would have turned it down. But because he and I wanted to do it, they were they have been incredibly supportive, as you would expect, and nobody regrets doing it. But that would be an example where the brothers <laughs> won out. Well, then I'll, I'll throw in right here that, that you have and correct me if I'm wrong, 23 stores, 19 of which are in Northeast Ohio and four are in the Chicago area. That's correct. And so you did two years of market and logistics research to determine what would work, and it's, it appears you discovered that you needed a population density of about 20,000 people within what range of a store? Depends okay. on the, it, it really, dep- it's, it's really, you have to look at that in terms of shopping range because, you know, we have a store in Chardon, but we get people from 10 to 15 miles away because okay. it's very rural. Okay. If you take Green Road, which is in the heart of the Heights, it's probably three miles. And so um, what you need is a population base within what you see as a reasonable shopping okay. uh, radius. You carry 40,000 items. Actually, 45,000 authorized items. Okay. What are some of the best-selling categories? Um, well, on per units, um, produce, I think, leads the way. Um, and it's probably easier, you know, it's a little bit unfair question because grocery has thousands and thousands of items. Um, but if you say, what are, what are the departments where finances distinguish themselves, um, I would tell you that uh, produce, meat, and seafood are probably departments where we have historically, over the last 20 years, um, really been a market leader. And we've always been very well respected in our prepared foods deli selection, and that has really come on strong in the last five to 10 years. That um, has massively increased in its overall sales percentage of the store. I'll just share, since I think the time is right, that I have been a lifelong Heinen shopper. When I was little, I went with my mom, and I've lived between two stores at certain points in my life. So, you know, depending on my flight path, as I call it, I always go. So, um, so I've noticed um, emergences of products mm-hmm. and things along the way. So, one thing I was wondering about is the Two Brothers line, um, which falls into the whole, um, I suppose, um, push for private labeling. That. You know, that's not something new. But I just wondered, you know, how does that benefit consumers when you introduce lines like that? Well, private labels history is a, is really interesting to me because when I first, when Jeff and I first got in the business in 1978, private label um, was a way that manufacturers would fill capacity um, of their plants and they would sell product less expensively. They wouldn't always use the same quality. And private label had the... Uh, reputation, deservedly so, that it wasn't always the same quality as national brands. Um, some For some time now, private label has really elevated itself into uh, as good or as comparable or better to all national brands. Heinen's really until, geez, less than 10 years ago, really wasn't in private label much. Um, you mentioned two brothers. That was really the first effort we had, which was designed, that label was designed to identify for our customers items that were typically artisan-based, they had a story behind them, and they were 
in our opinion, very, very high quality. Well, you did tomato sauce. That was one of your big ones, right? Uh, we, the first one we ever did was olive oil. Okay. And tomato sauce was down the road. We converted our teriyaki and barbecue sauce to Two Brothers. Um, but ironically, we only had like 30 items. And I had so many friends would come up to me and say, gosh, I really love your Two Brothers items. And I would always quietly think, yeah, there's only 30 of them. There's 40,000 items. And it's like, and so, but what happened with, uh, with to your point, the trend towards private label is um, we hired a guy who had directed the old Wild Oats private label, who we were in negotiations with to buy their private label for a couple years. And when they finally sold to Amazon, he became available. And he consulted with us, and we went overnight to 850 private label items. And it was easy because he basically was hooking us up with the providers from Wild Oats, who had a really, really high quality and good private label. Um, since that time, we've continued to grow it dramatically. And um, the probably the unique thing about our private label compared to others is it is almost entirely natural and organic. Um, so where it can be organic, it's organic. And if it's not organic, it's natural, no preservatives and no additives. And so it's a very, very high quality private label. And we've had um, very, very good success with our customers accepting it. They save money um, and they can get a little bit better value. And we continue to look for opportunities to build out our private label. Of course, Two Brothers is a reference to you and your brother. It Whose is. idea was that? Well, it was a marketing guy named Jerry Price who for <laughs> years worked, lived and worked here in Cleveland. And he, he's really probably the first true marketing guy Heinen's ever dealt with. And this goes back in the when Jeff and I first entered the business and he was very bright and um, so he came up with it and um, I think he came up with it but um, our we had an in-house graphic artist who actually did the, the label. So. It's very recognizable. Well it's a it's a takeoff on Picasso and people I say which is you and which is Jeff I'm like I don't think you understand it's really a takeoff of Picasso but people <laughs> like to guess which one we are so I don't I don't really can't sit here and tell you oh yeah I'm the one on the right or the left um, all right well you're also heavy as you said in prepared foods um, and you have the 70,000 square foot facility to, to serve that need but you've also installed kitchens in all of your stores that was yeah. a big push um, so you've been credited with, credited with being one of the most advanced grocery chains in the country when it comes to prepared foods. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, you know, what you can tell us about that. How is that a differentiator, do you think? Uh, it's a big differentiator. And uh, ironically, it's when I started my full-time career out of, after college, I started working in these little two-person prepared food units where um, they, uh, they just really fried chicken, did rotisserie chicken, some sandwiches. But literally since the day I joined Heinen's, um, that department and its um, the customer acceptance of it has grown at warp speed, exponential sales increases, and, and uh, they eventually far outgrew my capability to oversee it. Um, and and what, so, what do you attribute that growth to? I think, uh, you know, today when you look at how people look to get food, it's never been more evident that convenience and partially prepared or fully prepared food is a big part of people's lifestyle. I mean, you know, when you got all your kids are in sports or activities mm -hmm. and the, the ability to actually sit down and eat as a family, not because you don't want to, it's just because the activities the kids are involved in. And frankly, even, um, you know, empty nesters, they're involved in their own activities. And so um, 
people look for ways to eat healthy, good food at a reasonable price, and really take all that work out of the kitchen, um, including doing dishes, you know? There's a lot involved. The, the shopping, the, yeah. the putting it all away, the, di- yeah, the preparing it, the <laughs> cleanup after. It's a huge undertaking. And I think the other part that has manifested itself over time is, um, you know, when I first had a family, the amount of food we would throw out because we could never predict. Um, and, you know, I grew up with my dad believing you never went to restaurants because we, that's not our industry. We're in the grocery business. Mm-hmm. We need to you know, buy and cook the food at the grocery store. So we did. We were not restaurant goers. But what that led to when I adopted the same philosophy was with the activities and everything going on, we would throw out a tremendous amount of food because you couldn't get to cooking it before it was spoiled or not acceptable. And so the other thing that prepared food really does for you is you don't have any waste, really. And not only that, you can buy prepared food, you can eat it today, you can eat it tomorrow. And so it solves a heck of a lot of consumer problems. And I see that with the advent of Blue Apron and Home Chef and Plate It and all the meal kit companies as they're referred to, and all the delivery, the increase in delivery, um, including from restaurants, um, I, there's no way that trend is going to go anywhere but up. Well, that was my next question about home delivery. Um, just how big that is now, and how much growth do you expect? Because you're you're in you're in it now. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> we're in it. We're partnering with Instacart, and um, our we've just just passed our anniversary date mm-hmm. of one year here in Cleveland, and and another month it'll be in Chicago. It's been um, delivery has been surprisingly popular for Heinen's in just one year. Our sales have surprised all of us. Uh, we haven't put a whole lot of marketing behind it, so I'm sure it can be even better, and we're starting to, to do that. Uh, but the industry pundits and experts believe that by 2025, 25% of all food will be purchased through e-commerce. Now, that can mean um, some type of delivery company. Um, it can mean click and collect. Um, or what is they click and collect is where they order online and swing by like a personal pickup okay. and pick up their food. Johnny Go calls it curbside pickup, I believe. Um, but between that, so 25% is a lot. And so what um, it would appear is that there's going to be an attrition of brick and mortar stores somewhere over time. Because if people are getting their food that way, it will never support all the brick and mortar stores we have today. Um, so delivery is, is definitely here to stay. And um, there's an awful lot of activity going on in our industry with all the big companies and small companies to figure out how to best position themselves to maintain their market share or grow market share. And what is the cost involved with that, if someone, the markup well, for that? Well, the current, um, we do not make really any money doing delivery right now, but that's because we haven't really um, found ways to drive cost out of the whole system. The um, big companies are moving towards robotic picking, and they're talking about even using um, driverless cars with robots to hop out of the car and drop food at your doorstep. So, um, but delivery, everybody in the delivery business, including Amazon, are the first, they're all will say the same challenge. The biggest challenge they have is what they call the last mile. Mm-hmm. And that's connecting with the customer. How do you make sure they're home? How do you really handle that last mile of getting the grocery safely, or any delivery, 
into people's hands. You know, when it's a non-refrigerated product, um, it's really not a big deal to put it on their doorstep. And we all probably get something from Amazon somehow, some way, and the boxes sit there. And if my dog doesn't take it in the front yard, we actually get it at our house. But um, the uh, but perishable food is entirely different. You can't, on a 90-degree day, you can't just set something on a doorstep. And so I think that that's going to be a huge challenge. But there's so many people working on trying to find for solutions for these things, and I think this is going to happen fairly quickly. Okay. Um, so you are essentially in the business of food, but you're actually in a bunch of businesses, like marketing, trucking, trucking transportation, sourcing products, the real estate business, construction, merchandising, manufacturing, digital content creation, and this is all in a very obviously competitive sector. So I'm just wondering, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> well, we sleep at, at night because we think we have a great team. Okay. You know, I mean, if we didn't have as many, we have 3,500 people that wear the Heinen's blue shirts, as we say, and um, if we weren't so confident in the people we had and really have such a great foundation to build on, and, and you know, I think one of the advantages of, we're a very small company in our industry, even though we're a $600 million company, with, as you point out, 23 stores and then four, four other facilities. Um, but it's very small in our industry. And so one of the advantages we have compared to much larger companies is we're like a speedboat. You know, we can change directions fairly quickly and get that permeated throughout our stores. You know, Giant Eagle is a marvelously successful company, but when they want to change directions, they're much more like a cruise ship. And they certainly have done a great job of building their business and, and being very... Um, I think innovative in their various formats, but at the end of the day, one of the advantages small companies like us have is our ability to, I think, quickly change and um, and morph into whatever we need to to satisfy and be relevant in our customers. Uh, well, one thing that you're able to do as a local business is um, give local companies a chance, and you have 400 locally made products, I believe. Um, so I'm wondering what products have sold well, and one that immediately comes to mind is Inca tea, which I love. Um, well, you hit on one of our strategic prongs, which is we want to be known as a local grocer. Um, not only locally owned, but we want to be known that we are very um, aggressive in trying to root out local producers of food so we can um, support them and support the local community. So uh, Inca tea is a great product, um, but you know we have a great dairy like Maselli's Dairy mm -hmm. is a great long-time deli, and the amount of local products. You know, we at one time I counted the amount of spaghetti sauces we had. Um, I think we had like 15 or 20 spaghetti sauces from restaurants. So we we may even overdo it sometimes. But uh, as far as the best local product, I'd have to look that up. But frankly, most local products, if they've done a decent job of building their brand. Um, it really helps sell through our stores. And then, of course, they're more willing to come in and demo and promote their products in our stores. So that's really one of the keys is, is for them to come out and sell their stories. And how do they do that with you? Um, with demos, they do it. Okay. They can do it through aggressive promotion. Okay. But uh, there's no substitute for somebody standing in the store sampling Inca tea and telling the Inca tea story. There's no substitute for that. And if they're willing to do that, they can build a very good following because what we find pretty much universally, as long as the product's comparable in flavor and 
healthfulness, if you will, and most local products are healthy. Um, they tend to be a little more natural. Um, but if, if they can do that, customers love to support local. If you put nine out of 10 customers in front, you say, this is a local product, this is a national branded product, and they feel that they're equally as good and, and pretty, com pretty competitive price. Don't have to be exact same price. They're going to buy local. Interesting. Okay, I want to talk about 2015. This was a big year. You opened your store at the corner of 9th and Euclid downtown. Um, but that was plan B. Plan A was to open a store um, on the Flats East Bank development. But the recession kind of killed that idea. Um, but I have to tell you, I mean, it is a stunning store. I mean, I marvel at it every time I go there, and I just wondered what on earth inspired you to think that would work as a store? <laughs> That's a great question, and you know, everything happens for a reason, and yes, we were moving along, um, opening that store in the flats with the Wolstein property and the recession hit and that failed and that's a good thing for us because we have a much better location and, then, and I'm sure this store would have done okay but it was banked bordered by the river mm -hmm. and so you know, you lose that part of the geographic area to a degree uh, but uh, East Ninth when you say what made you think it could work and ironically when we looked at the property first I would tell you the amazing thing to me was that building had not functioned as a viable business since 1992 or 3 and when I walked the building, I was stunned at how good a shape the the atrium and, and the, the bank building was. It was in very, very good condition. And, um, you know, when we, we had 28 different layouts, so I don't want you to think it was an easy decision about how to figure to use the 1010 building, which is next door. We knocked out the wall, and we connect that for the grocery and produce, and then the atrium. But really what it came down to is, all we really did in that bank building was put um, service food counters in the place where teller stations were. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody was to walk in and close their eyes and think about what that looked like, these were these beautiful marble counters. Which bank was it? Uh, well, it was originally Cleveland Trust, okay. which followed all the society and Ameritrust mm -hmm. and, and uh, that thing which had been my grandfather's bank. It's the bank we started with. I remember my first checking account was with Cleveland Trust with a Model T which is great. So it was very cool to see for example the brass medallion in the floor with the Cleveland Trust logo. I was like wow this is too cool. <laughs> so um, when we walked the store we said yeah you know I think we can make this work. Um, but it was really about you know when you're in a retail business in a in a quote city greater metropolitan metropolitan area, uh, the, the, the health of the city is crucial to the retail in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so we've done such a nice job in Cleveland of rebuilding our city. Um, you know, when I went to college in 1973, uh, there was no restaurant open after 5 o'clock at night downtown. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's stunning, right? And, and it, was, it was dead. It was a dead city and nobody went down there unless it was for the games and yeah. there was nowhere to go after the games and so um, the job we've done all of us here in Cleveland rebuilding the city is amazing and we really felt like this was a great opportunity for us to build a very cool store but to really invest in all of our futures um, by putting a badly needed grocery store down there and um, yeah, I had one developer who was pitching us and you know, every, again, everything seems to happen for a reason. When we set up a tour 
of our senior team with three of the developers down there and we walked the space and they would walk around and say, hey, there's going to be 100 units there and 300 units there. And they wanted to impress upon us that the current population, which was the constraint from us wanting to put a store there, um, was going to radically change. And But it was an October day. It was 70 degrees. People were all eating lunch outside. And as we walked around, it's just like, man, if God ever created a day that would want us to say, don't you want to have a store here? It was that day, and and um, and so, uh, you know, I think we we made the decision to invest with the Geis brothers, and they did. A, we've done a nice job, I think, utilizing the space and preserving the history of the building, and it's still going to take a while before we get a true return on that building. But um, I think the goodwill we got and the commitment to continuing to the development of the inner city because they have a supermarket is huge. I would agree. Um, okay, I have a self-indulgent question. <laughs> What's it like making a dinner reservation in this town with the last name Heinen? <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised. It doesn't get picked up on very often. I mean, if it's a friend I know, um, <laughs> may, you know, somebody might pick up on it. But no, I mean, people don't do that. And you'd be surprised how many times when I'm just out and uh, I'll have my Heinen's clothes on like I do normally. And um, until I give them... And a lot of times I'll give my credit card or something, and they won't even connect it. Okay. And um, so, uh, you know, Jeff and I like to fly under the radar anyways. We're not, we don't really like to be out front. If we had our choice, we'd never be out front. We would have our people out front. They're the ones who deserve all the accolades. You know, we're just two people. And we have 3,500 people out there every day trying to make kindness, you know, as good as it can be. And so um, it's not, you'd be surprised. I'm not going to say it never gets noticed. But it certainly isn't most of the time, okay. and that's fine. We're good with that. Okay. You mentioned a few times um, when you went to college. I'm just wondering what you majored. You and Jeff both majored in that you brought to the business. Um, I studied um, business management in undergrad Where, and at what school? At Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and Jeff studied economics in at Stanford. And um, like I think most undergraduate educations, you end up using very little of the actual book work, but, you know, as my dad used to say, don't get caught up in that. It's a training of the mind, okay. and it trains you to think, and there's a maturity level that goes on with it, and so I think we all, both of us got out of it what we were supposed to get out of it. Um, neither one of us chose to go to graduate school um, after that, the way many people do. My youngest daughter is at Kellogg Northwestern's um, highly rated MBA program. Um, but I, I think that, um, so I think that it just helped us um, be prepared uh, from a pure growing up basis. And you went right into the band? Well, actually, we, actually yeah. we didn't. We, okay. uh, we, um, Jeff, as I said, went to Stanford, so I drove out after I graduated and we spent six months living in the Bay Area. Um, I got a job in a restaurant and did various jobs in a restaurant. He ended up being a server at that restaurant and one other he had worked at during college. So it was kind of the, well, let's just have fun and make enough money to live. And so we came home in December, it was June, came home in December and I had never traveled. And so I went to Europe for six months and backpacked and um, did the Europe on $10 a day routine. And Jeff actually, went to New Zealand, Australia, and came around the world. And believe it or not, we actually met 
on our birthday in June at Hyde Park um, in London, and mm -hmm. we were going to bicycle together. Um, I still think in today's world, I have no idea how, with no cell phones or anything like that, we actually arranged to meet that way. It's, it's like, you two are very connected, it seems like. Well, same, same yeah. womb, right? Yeah. But, uh, but I just don't, it's, it's weird. I mean, I know I had a, we'd call home and you could use the, the hub and spoke method where you call home and talk to our parents and say, okay, well, here, this is what you're going to do. But um, it was pretty amazing. But as it turned out, I was pretty beat up from traveling. And so I said, uh, he was traveling with a college friend of his. I said, you go ahead and do the British house. I'm not big on biking anyway. So, um, and so two weeks later, he got tired and he came home too. So, um, and that's I, when you started? Uh, we painted my parents' house okay. for a week, and <laughs> then we started, and I, I actually started two weeks before you did, so if seniority ever counts, I always have seniority. Got it. Okay, this is my last question, um, and this is um, for listeners. You've stated that you're always looking for hardworking people, so I'm just wondering um, what positions are you most often looking to fill? Um... Well, we look for all positions, but obviously the vast majority of our positions are store operating positions. So really, we look for anybody on the front end, or if you like stock work, or if you want to work in any of the perishable departments, um, you know, www.heinens.com, you go and apply online. Um, I will tell you that businesses, um, all businesses are watching very carefully how much they hire and we're trying to be more efficient. So full-time jobs are more to premium, but one of the ways to get full-time work, obviously, is start part-time and demonstrate that, you know, you have the right work ethic and, the, and that you really have a desire to make Heinen's more of a career. Uh, but even we have tons of really great part-time people. I think some of the unsung heroes are our students. Our students make up about 20% of our population, and um, they're an incredible incredibly important part of our business and we over the years we've gotten so many great compliments on our students and they're they're like wow what do you do to make make your people so great and I said well first of all keep in mind that students are as much a product of their parents as anything we do <laughs> and I said you know we didn't make them and um, but we try to create an environment where they can grow as people and really have a little bit of fun doing work and learn and so um, I think if you create that environment, people will be very engaged with your, with your customer. And it's, so far, that recipe's proven okay. But what's also notable is you have a, many employees who have been there a long time. We did. You very know, we, recognizable. We have a service award banquet um, every year. And this year, we had 20 people that had been there 40 years or more. Wow. And oh, my God. That's off the charts. We had eight last year, I believe. But... Yeah, this, the people who have been there, um, the number of people who attended, that was 350. And um, some were management people, but anybody, we reward on the five-year increments, so 5, 10, 15, 20. But you're 100% you're right that we're very proud of the fact that so many people have chosen to make Heinen's their career and you know raise their family. And, and that type of commitment and loyalty is always going to breed better performance, in our opinion. Well, performance is one of your hallmarks, so uh, I think we owe a huge thank you to you for operating such a successful business and giving people both shopping and employment opportunities. Well, thank you very much, and we're very happy to have been in Warrensville Heights since 1960, so that's really great. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much. You're welcome.